the difference between GPS and GON. GPS is the navigation, right? It's positioning, navigation, and timing. The timing element is very important, but most people think about it in terms of the dot on the map and which way am I going and, and waypoint and wayfinding, right? Geospatial intelligence is the map. Welcome to the Space Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, founder and managing partner at Space Capital, a seed stage venture capital firm investing in the space economy. We're actively investing out of our third fund with 100 million under management. You can find us on social media at Space Capital. In this podcast, we explore what's happening at the cutting edge of the entrepreneurial space age and speak to the founders and innovators at the forefront. Welcome to the Space Capital Podcast, where typically we speak to the founders we backed, but today we're going to do something a little different. Joining me in the studio today is my fellow managing partner at Space Capital, Justice Killian. And we're going to dive into the geospatial market, which is expected to grow from 63 to $148 billion over the next five years. This is a massive opportunity that's growing quickly and has proven to be recession-proof through the markets of the last year. So needless to say, it's an area that we're highly focused on at Space Capital. And at the end of last year, we published the GeoInt Playbook, which is our investment thesis on the future of geospatial intelligence and our outlook on digitizing the physical world. Justice, it's great to be talking with you today about one of our favorite topics at Space Capital. To kick us off, maybe it would be helpful to give our audience a bit of background. You know, why would a VC firm that trades on our expertise be publishing our our insights like this? We spend a lot of time understanding the way that technology fits together. We research, discuss, debate, invest, learn. And as a thesis-driven investor, we can monitor and evaluate how our thesis develops and evolves. We use that research to then inform how we invest, how we're trying to shape the direction of a market. And a key part of what we do in our process is putting that thesis out there and helping others see and connect the dots and see how the pieces fit together. And so for us, that really started with creating a framework to understand how space technology, which feels so abstract and far away and very limited in its scope, you know, Apollo landings and International Space Station, actually exists in a commercial aspect that touches all aspects of our lives and every major industry. And so that research, that deep dive effort for us started with the GPS playbook that we wrote several years ago and provided a really important framework to help us understand how you go from very narrow use cases for space technology into wide-scale adoption. And so that set us in motion to today. We kicked things off with the GPS playbook. We've written a couple of other playbooks. We've got three key technology stacks that we focus on, GPS, geospatial intelligence, and satellite communications. And to frame this up and kind of put it into context, we're tracking investment in the private markets. There's been $270 billion invested into 1,800 unique space companies over the last 10 years. And most of this has gone to satellites. 90% of it's gone to satellites. 9% of it's gone to launch, 1% of it's gone to some of these other emerging areas. But satellites is really where all the action is. And within satellites, there is infrastructure, distribution, and applications. It's something that we 
discovered when we wrote the GPS playbook. It's a really helpful framework to think about space technology, right? That the infrastructure is, for example, the the satellites, the GPS satellites that Lockheed builds. And then the distribution, like, so, so that was built, you know, by the government for the government and military purposes. And it was really limited in its reach until commercial GPS receivers were developed by Trimble, Magellan, Garmin, and others that harnessed that really valuable data, those signals that were coming off of those GPS satellites, and made them accessible to the tech community who then built a seemingly infinite number of applications. Starting with turn-by-turn navigation, you know, companies like TomTom in the 90s and, you know, yeah. Right. And so most of the investment has gone to satellites and most of that has gone to applications. And that's where most of the value comes from as well, right? We see the Commerce Department came out with a report right around the time that we put out the GPS playbook that said that in the U.S. alone, there was a trillion and a half dollars of economic value generated by GPS. And we know that it's generated some of the largest venture outcomes we've seen. So this way of looking at the world, infrastructure distribution applications, has proven very useful, not just in GPS, but also in the other space technology stacks. And in GeoIn, it was really helpful for us also when thinking about SpaceX removed the barriers to entry in 2009 when they launched their first customer. We started to see all these new constellations of large quantities of small satellites being launched and generating an unprecedented amount of new data from orbit, really timely data about the surface of our planet, movements on the surface of our planet. And then that data was then getting picked up and, 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 and used in applications as well. So GPS was a dot on a map. It gave us you know, a location at a point in time. The underlying information, that base map, was created within the geospatial world. And there had been a number of big established players that had been working in that, both on the data collection side, so I think Maxar and Digital Globe, and then on the processing base maps, sort of structuring of that information, you know, think Mapbox. And these two worlds have not played very nicely together. You know, the Maxars existed largely to serve governments. The Mapboxes existed to serve more of a tech community and more of a developer community. And these universes, space-based assets, a very narrow understanding of sort of Earth observation, didn't play nicely into a much broader tech stack. And so, We've been observing what's been happening in Earth observation with the launch of many satellites. We've seen some of the first movers in this area, whether it be Skybox Imaging, which our partner, Tom Ingersoll, helped build and take to exit. are some of our first investments in companies like Planet and ISI that were early movers, built not only the hardware, but the full stack in terms of the ground stations, the processing capabilities, and then ultimately the analytics on top of that. Being early movers, they had to build these full stack solutions. And it had kept the industry focused on pretty high value customers, low volume, continuing to serve governments and a handful of very large industry players. And it kept geospatial intelligence relatively small. As we've been watching patterns in terms of our own investments and what we're seeing and what we're talking to with you know, leading research institutions and big tech players and where they're seeing all the pieces come together, 
we started to see that that framework of infrastructure distribution application, the specialization was also showing up within geospatial intelligence. And our thesis, I mean, we've been working on this report in particular for, I mean, four years probably in a variety of different shapes, and it's evolved a lot. And so the framework gave us a way to see the the layers in which the evolution is happening. And I think come away with some pretty unique and powerful insights that connect that world of tech and applications to that world of sensors and data and, and sort of the hardware and, and aerospace community. I think this was one of the big takeaways from the GPS playbook is that you've got really two communities here, right? You've got the, the, the space community, which is the ones who are building the satellites and the sensors and the space infrastructure. And then you've got the applications, and these are being built by the application developers, the software engineers in Silicon Valley, the ones that maybe don't know anything about satellites or how they work, or, you know, they don't go to the same conferences. They're completely separate groups of people with seemingly very different interests. And I think if you talk to either side, you would get a mixed reaction as to does Uber, if you go and talk to an Uber software engineer, do you think that you work for a space company? I think it depends on who you talk to. I mean, I think that there are some people who are there that are focused on the GPS signal and enhancing that and making it better. And they would definitely say yes. Many of them probably don't. On the same side, on the space side, you get the same sort of reaction, you know. And so these communities don't ever really overlap. And I think that that's really one of the areas where we've done really well to help bridge that gap at Space Capital. And We've tried to do that in these reports and try to draw those connections between the space infrastructure and how it's actually being used and how it gets into the hands of customers and, and how it's becoming applications. And it wasn't sufficient for us to just have this thesis, see history repeat itself, see observations and deal flow. I mean, we went out and talked and worked with NVIDIA, Amazon and AWS, you know, USC and professors at Stanford and validated this hypothesis with them, you know, as well. Do you see this? Do you see this different specialization and layers? And I mean, it was really helpful. I and mean, that's a part of the research that matters. You know, it's not us just seeing the pattern recognition, seeing companies that follow that pattern recognition but industry practitioners, key tech players that are building out verticals within their offering, researchers that are seeing talent and training their next generation of talent to fit into these verticals. It was very confirming of that initial thesis. So, In the era of SpaceX, where you've got access to orbit, and we've got new entrepreneurs coming in and innovating and, and experimenting with different platforms and different sensors and things, all of that's really interesting, but that's just one part of the puzzle right, that the Earth observation piece is one input into a much larger geospatial market. And I think that's one of the key takeaways from this research that we put out is, again, connecting those dots and bridging the gap between the Earth observation and the geospatial market at large. Another important insight that came out of that, we often approach Space is a lens by which we look back at Earth and see how data and technology is is flowing down into different industries. And so satellites was a natural starting point on the infrastructure side for us. But very quickly, you realize that satellite data alone is insufficient. So 
you know, oftentimes when people are talking about the innovation that's happened within Earth observation, it's we've gone from optical to SAR to infrared to hyperspectral and multispectral, all these different types of sensors, which is great. And they're more abundant and there's commercial providers. And that is true. They're very complex. They offer a very rich layer of information. But satellites offer a certain set of benefits. They're inherently global. They're farther away from Earth, so their resolution is going to be less. Their cost point relative to some other data collection methods is lower given the scale that they operate at. But in itself, satellites are only one entry point into sort of that critical infrastructure and the platforms by which you can capture data. And this goes to the beginning. I mean, the NGA has been a pioneer in tipping and queuing process where they use satellites and broad swath detection to detect something that's interesting or relevant or important and then queue up another process, whether it be aerial or drone or even much more localized, even now to the point of cell phones, to be able to get much more focused timely, precise information about what they observed at a broad scale. And um, the industry, geospatial intelligence moving beyond just sort of a narrow Earth observation definition, that is also becoming possible. You have high-altitude balloon platforms, you have aerial data that's being captured, you have drones that you know soon are going to be able to travel beyond line of sight. You have a proliferation of handheld and mobile car-based data collection methods. And so that from the surface of the earth, you know, all the way to low earth orbit, you have a tremendous amount of insight that's being captured and creating different pers- geospatial perspectives at each layer. And those sensors exist at each of those different layers. And it's a much more holistic way to see how all the pieces fit together. And it's learning from the practitioners, literally the people that created sort of the intelligence, how they do this process. And it's now becoming available to commercial partners in centralized data repositories where you can get access to this information. It's not one data provider, it's many on many different platforms and many different sensor types. Yeah, and so that's the infrastructure is that we've got everything from Earth orbit, and we're looking at things from a global scale, from a very unique vantage point in space, all the way down to ground sensors, which is giving us super high resolution, very specific information. And the power is unlocked when you fuse all that data together and you start to get, you know, unique insights because each one of those different sensors has trade-offs, right? It's better at something and it's, you know, the more specific you get, the less global you get and vice versa, right? So having all of that at your fingertips, putting it all together in a way, fusing the data together is all is all very interesting. And in the report, we go through some of the key things that have unlocked this, right? I mean, it's not just sensor platforms, it's also compute, GPUs. Moving from that infrastructure side, all these different platforms collecting data, the exponential growth in information that's coming off of these platforms creates a challenge to users, adopters, there's barriers to actually making this information usable, manageable. And so companies like Digital Globe were processing petabytes of data on-premise using tools that they'd built in-house, moving that infrastructure and that data capture into the cloud through you know, what Amazon and Microsoft are now being able to do to be able to downlink directly into the cloud allows you to bring not only modern 
CPU and TPU and GPU capabilities into sort of the, the computation side, but also storage benefits and a whole ecosystem of modern technology tools, whether it be AI, ML, or as a service business models that allow you to make better use of your data. Well, first, process it, interpret it, and create value from it at scale, which had been very, very difficult in the past. And now we have a whole new set of APIs and developer toolkits that allow us to fuse that information, get much more precise and more sophisticated. And, you know, we're seeing scientific discoveries every week on the sort of benefits of sensor fusion and new deep learning techniques to be able to extract more and more value out of this information. And so it's going from a very verticalized, complex tech stack where academics, PhDs, they were the only ones that could access this or very well-resourced companies to now a Python developer that has certain access to libraries that they can bring in this information, plug into an API, spin up an instance on AWS and do some pretty incredible calculations and come away with some very powerful standardization and insights that could be integrated into a product or an application. And so that's the shift that we're seeing, particularly when we move from infrastructure to distribution. It's these as-a-service scalable solutions that allow you to process more, interpret, and go much farther with the data with very much less background knowledge about the satellites, the sensors, and where it came from and how it came and a lot of that's enabled, like you said, through cloud services and cloud infrastructure. These big tech giants coming onto the scene, enabling that, collecting that information through their ground station as a surface. Now we're fusing it with all this other data. We're making a lot more use out of it. We have a lot of advanced cloud compute capabilities that we're now applying to this. Satellites were pretty late to the game with regards to cloud. It wasn't until, I think, 2017, the Digital Globe moved over to the cloud versus on-prem servers. And so this has had as big of an impact as low-cost launch has, without a doubt. So now that we've got this, we've got all this data down, and we're now, you know, between some of our portfolio companies, I mean, we've had Skywatch on the platform, right? Now it's a, it's a matter of removing the complexity from the system. So instead of having these verticalized solutions where as a customer, you would have to go out and talk to each one of these customers, you'd have to, one know the landscape, figure out who provides what, reach out to them specifically. In a lot of cases, they don't even have a website. You have to call them up on the phone. You have to negotiate your own pricing. They have minimum order requirements that are really big. They have legal contracts and things that you have to negotiate with each one of these providers. These are high barriers to entry. And so removing over the last few years, Skywatch and some of the big tech companies have removed a lot of that complexity from the ecosystem, which is great because they're making it much easier to access this information. They are aggregating all the data onto a single platform, fusing all of that data together and making it really easily accessible through an API. And we're starting to see the first applications leveraging this access to this new data now. Within distribution, we have seen two very interesting advancements that are very subtle. Beyond cloud, beyond processing, storage, compute, downlink. So the first that I think is worth talking about is Skywatch. They are able to centralize and aggregate a lot of the data suppliers, Earth observation, but also aerial, and we talked about, structure this data, ensure common file formats, make sure that it's clean and orthorectified and there's no cloud coverage in, in the imagery 
and making that data then accessible based on a geofence location that allows for high volume but very low value customers to start to engage with this data. Now, that may seem trivial, but the entire Earth observation (laughs) data capture and infrastructure is not set up for that. They're focused entirely on large value, low volume customer segments. So this essentially API-based marketplace is opening up entirely new customer segments and centralizing access to information. I mean, that's a huge step forward. So one is on the supply side, the achievements that they've made. The other is actually on the demand side. And it's pretty clearly known that geospatial intelligence can be used within mobility. It can be used within agriculture, logistics. These are, you know, sort of the big known common use cases. But developers experimenting with this data, you can actually then start to see what sensor types and what resolutions and what altitude or elevation is most in demand in terms of what the market wants to build their necessary solutions. And so that's a fundamental shift in how infrastructure gets built. Historically, that capability has been scientific imagination saying, hey, we can build these satellites. We have this really awesome sensor. This is the resolution. So we're going to put it up there and just make this data available and people will build things on it and they'll figure it out. And that was fine for free, publicly available data. It allowed a, you know, a sort of an early geospatial market to experiment and sort of create these small consulting type services where people are sort of developing that. But it didn't create high quality, repeatable, scalable data that can be used for commercial purposes across very specific industry verticals. And it doesn't fill in the gaps. It doesn't focus on the customer needs and then build the sensors and align with actually a demand-driven sort of innovation cycle. And so we're starting to get to that point. As you understand where innovation and where these new customers are starting to demand sensor types and data, you can actually build solutions for them. And so Skywatch has built a solution similar to their EarthCache. They now have TerraStream, which allows them to help align a marketplace, a two-sided marketplace that actually makes the market more efficient, creates and captures data that people actually want and are willing to pay for. That's a big step forward. Given the time it takes to build satellites and sensors and put them into orbit and the cost, I mean, it's a bit pretty difficult proposition to propose that, hey, I'm going to launch these satellites and someone's going to, you know, we're, if we build it, they will come. And that sort of technology push has been dominating the category up until very, very recently. There is an infinite number of use cases. And that's the beauty of it is when you remove the barriers to entry, you start to, you know, and you just allow the innovation to come in and you allow you know, an infinite number of people to develop an infinite number of use cases, the people who are closest to the customer develop solutions for that customer. That's when you start to to understand what customers actually want out of this data. And it might not be a better sensor. It might not be better resolution. You know, it might, they might not care or they might care a lot, but you don't know until you start to talk to the customer. That's like number one rule in startup, right? Is to if you've got an idea for something that, that someone wants, you go out and you talk to those customers and get some feedback. And when you start to flow that upstream, it's really, really interesting to see where the gaps in the data are and where they can be filled. I mean, it's very obvious when you look at the commercial providers within Earth observation. They're at 
50 centimeter resolution and it's all optical data. That's where people have been competing. And now we're getting to a point where it's 30 centimeter. That's what people are competing for. And that's a little bit of SAR. And we know based on these demand signals that there's interest for over 280 different types of data and sensor types. Right now, the market is providing you know, 10 to 15 of those. So there's a huge gap in terms of what the applications need and want and what the engineers and the businesses are creating and providing. And so they're all competing on sort of razor thin margins for a select group of areas based on known use cases. And they don't understand this huge potential that exists out there. And so that's, that's what a marketplace can help unlock. It can create these new use cases, put the right types of sensors up there and, and build a lot of new opportunity. I mean, the second major development that we've also invested in within that distribution layer goes to the training side of the AI ML challenges and actually acquiring sufficient training data. Even so the NGA has a great quote. I heard this a couple of years ago at one of their annual conferences and longest, most sophisticated user of geospatial data. They have said their biggest challenge is getting sufficient training data sets to actually make use and actually get value out of their observation data. We've got too much of it now. That's the issue is like we've unlocked the access. We put it all in the cloud. Now we have too much of it. How do we make use out of it? And so synthetic data is a really powerful tool to help you quickly create what you want to train for, do it at a very low cost way, define edge cases or unexpected scenarios that haven't been directly observed to bring into your model and and rapidly accelerate and I would say increase the resiliency of what you're trying to detect for. And that cuts way beyond, you know, so when you get to this level, you're thinking more than just satellite imagery that shows up in healthcare and it shows up in autonomous vehicles and all of them are using computer vision and sort of optical and different types of imagery to make critical decisions. And the use of synthetic data to train and improve and um, increase the robustness of your models and your detection capabilities is incredibly valuable. And I think you see that in that um, distribution layer, the horizontal nature of some of these tools, the building blocks that allow developers to do more and, and build better engineering tools, software capabilities, detection methods that bring to bear the ease of application development. Now that we've unlocked this access, now that we have made these very dense data sets available, accessible in a format that makes sense to developers that fits into their work streams and workflows, allows them to build end user applications on them. We're now starting to see the first of those come to market. And this is an area where we've been watching very closely because this is all blue ocean stuff. We're basically witnessing the birth of location-based services, but we think that this could be much, much, much bigger than that $36 billion market. The number of applications are seemingly infinite. We're seeing it built into insurance through Arbel and their parametric insurance platform that is using satellite data to validate claims and have an objective measurement and an automatic payout of insurance premiums. We have an agriculture play with Regrow, who is using satellite data to power their software solution. Long story short is that we have a few of these in our portfolio, but the potential here is much, much greater. And so when do we start to see this 
really take off. It feels like 2023 could be the year where we really start to see the application developers get a hold of this data and start doing really interesting things with it. And one of the key reasons why I think that is because geospatial data is providing valuable insights to enterprises and governments, both of which are large customers that are willing to pay. And we're seeing them put their money where their mouth is. Through the market downturn in 2022, there has been a focus on business fundamentals and revenue. And government contracts make up a big piece of that. And in Q2, the National Reconnaissance Office, one of the big five U.S. intelligence agencies, they made their largest ever purchase of satellite imagery directly from the providers. But there is a lot of demand for this data because it's so important for enterprises to understand the market, whether it's going up or down. It's providing them information to be able to, to assess. And so what we like to say is that as the world becomes more dynamic and uncertain, you know, these customers want more of this data. And so because of that, it feels like in these tighter capital markets that there's going to be more opportunity. You know, people are going to be looking for the opportunities where there is business fundamentals, where there is opportunity for revenue and near-term revenue. And it feels like this is one of those areas where you can build a geospatial application and get to revenue pretty quickly. I think there's a, a handful of drivers there that, you know, you highlight, which is you know, in times of uncertainty, the value of data becomes greater. Companies are increasingly relying on the, on data to make decisions. And so I think the pandemic was a great example. You weren't able to send people out to every location to validate and create a sense of ground truth and, and what's happening. And so the adoption of satellite data and the willingness to experiment and utilize that capability became more important, not less important. And so there was a greater willingness to experiment with new ways of doing things. Now with the financial downturn, large companies are having to find ways to figure out how to streamline their operations and improve revenue. The difference between GPS and GeoInt. GPS is the navigation, right? It's positioning, navigation, and timing. The timing element is very important, but most people think about it in terms of the dot on the map and which way am I going and, and waypoint and wayfinding, right? Geospatial intelligence is the map. So this is essentially, you know, four or five years of research that we've tried to distill down into this report. So hopefully it was helpful. Hopefully that, you you know, you learned something. We certainly did by going through the process and by writing it up and, and by thinking through it and by, as you mentioned, you know, reaching out to some of the leaders who have been in this category and been in this field for a lot longer than we have. And so hopefully it gives you an interesting lens through which to, you know, view the opportunity. We think it's massive. Let us know what you think. If you'd like to hear more from us, we can talk through some more of our research. Yeah, hopefully you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning into the Space Capital Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in learning more about investing in the space economy, I invite you to visit our website, spacecapital.com, where you can get access to more industry-leading insights and learn how you can join the entrepreneurial space age.